Sometimes they ha- sin has even a more malevolent purpose. Sometimes it wants to cook our goose. So we have to be careful. <laughs> we have to be careful what to eat. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Irenicast, the weekly podcast dedicated to conversations on faith and culture. We are your hosts. I'm Jeff. I'm Mona. And I'm Alan. And I'm Katie. We have with us a special guest today, but before we introduce her to you, today our conversation is going to be centered around family and family systems, which I think is apropos, considering that we are in the holiday season and families seem to be uh, the good part or the bad part of our holiday experience. And then after our conversation, we will be bringing back a segment from, I think, our first, actually our third or fourth episode, Jesus Juke. Um, So before we get into the conversation, Katie, welcome to Irenicast. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, So my name is Katie, and I have my Master of Divinity degree. And while doing that, I also got my Master of Social Work degree because I really wanted the way my faith career and faith leadership to pan out would be to work with real people and real problems and real places. And part of my education involved doing a clinical pastoral education unit, CPE, which meant that I got to work at a hospital and I worked at a fantastic hospital um, in an incredible urban setting and got to work with all kinds of patients and all kinds of things. But I also found while doing this hospital work that I was having these different kinds of experiences and not really sure what was going on. And I was able to use this system called internal family systems theory, which can actually be to family systems theory, which is, you know, maybe jumping ahead a little bit to our topic of the day, but it is relevant to my own life. And it's the um, reason you're here. It's the reason I'm you're here. You're not just an amazing person. You have a little bit of experience <laughs> with what we're talking about. Right yeah. Um, and I'll say too that right now I serve a church and I work with families and children. Um, and so I also see this play out every day. Awesome. Well, we are looking forward to your insight on an area that I think when we were talking about this episode, it's going to be helpful for us to have some, uh, to fill in the gaps a little bit because although we put ourselves out as experts in all things, we, we in reality are not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I will. I get well, excited about family systems theory, and I know a little bit personally, but not enough to say anything. Alan, I think you get excited about anything that ends in the word theory. There you go. I do. <laughs> I absolutely do. And family. All right. Well, let's start with just the idea of family systems, and then we'll kind of let the conversation go from there. So from my understanding, and again, anyone correct me if I'm wrong, but basically family systems comes from the basic foundation that... Um, individuals cannot be understood in isolation from one another, but as a part of a family and that who you are is not just 100% you've decided to be that person, but you are affected by your family dynamics, the situations that you encounter in your family. And to really understand individuals, we need to understand the unit in which they come from. It plays into modern psychology, whereas we used to believe that people are kind of predisposed to whatever sorts of personality traits that they have. But now we're learning more and more that people are products of their environment, so much so that it's almost like you have a a totally formable 
personality when you're born and the way that you're situated in your context and in your family will determine a lot of how you how you grow up and how you turn out. So this is kind of representing shifts in modern psychology as well as the way um, people understand the way societies work through like anthropology and sociology. So how this plays out in therapy situations is, you know, a family will bring somebody in or parents will bring a kid in and they'll sit down and they'll say, we need to fix this kid. There's a problem. They're acting out in school. They're having difficulties. And if we can just fix this person, everything will be fine. <laughs> and for, for therapists and psychologists, they're realizing it's not just about the person. It's also the system that they're in that has to be diagnosed. So you don't just talk to that person. You talk to their parents. You talk about their marriage, you talk about brothers and sisters, and you create a map to be able to diagnose a family. I forgot what that map is called, but it is called something like a genogram or something in family systems theory. Yeah, I think genogram is the right word. And also to add to that as well is the notion that there's a larger system that we're part of and there's a smaller system that we're part of. So your family system is one system. And in the school situation you just named, that's part of a larger societal system that also can need its own diagnosing and addressing. But then even within that, you know, the kid that's brought to therapy for being a problem child, that individual also is their own system um, that's part of this larger system that's part of a larger system. So that's what you were talking about, internal family systems, this would be that individual. Yes. Because we internalize what we perceive as those systems, like we and we subconsciously act out of them. But I want to say two things. First of all, the word system and the word theory are both very complicated. So if we can pause for a minute and say what a system is, I think of a system as like a chain link fence, like you might be one link in a chain link fence, but you're connected to everything. And if someone pulls a link a few feet away, it's going to also pull you. So just how interconnected our, our realities are. That's what I think of when we say the word system. And then the word theory just means something that hasn't been totally proven yet, right? Well, psychology is a soft science, right? Isn't that the <laughs> everything's a theory or something like that? Some people say that. I've heard people in churches and people at base say, oh, that's just psychology. That's just psychological nonsense. So how about the master of social uh, work? <laughs> tell me tell me why social work and psychology is not just uh, pie in the sky and fancy thinking. Um, well, I would say, I would think of systems and theories more as like, what's the framework that we're working with? Like, yeah, it's apt to change. I mean, family systems theory is relatively new. But it's our working framework. We think maybe this is how we work together and how the world works. Let's play with it. And then when we're, we come up with something new, we'll do that. So um, theory, theory means something you work with. Like the theory of gravity. We, we have something that we see and so we're working with it. Right. Right. And it's not like, I mean, this is a, a game to get into of saying, oh, yes, it's just a theory. Therefore, we can ignore it if we choose to because it's not proven. Oh, no. Um, it's something we're still working with. It's a work, if working framework. And the, the theory is coming from some kind of experience that sparks the thought. So, I mean, if we're putting it down to a practical level, we all know how we've been either shaped or messed up by our family situation and, you know, how that develops. And part of it is based in, you know, science. Our experience forms our brain and most of our experience in the formative years of our brain development are related to family. So there's definitely you know, connection there. And depending upon the extreme nature of whatever our families might be, we've all, we've all had some kind of experience in these things. Yeah. You were talking about systems, um, or we are talking about systems. And I think of the different units of a family serving different functions. So it, although it's entirely maybe uh, subconscious, we as assign different people in a family, different roles, not like activities, but as in, um, 
there's pressure in the family, in the finance department, or in a relationship. And if there is uh, a different family member, for instance, like that example I brought up earlier, if there's a kid who is acting out, sometimes all those other problems can be covered up because we are looking at that part of the family that, like Mona said, pulling on the fence, you'll see the tension where the kid is and you'll say that's the problem without actually diagnosing what the real problem is. And maybe that kid will become a troubled kid because they are serving that function to relieve the stress and the rest of the fence. And maybe they'll eventually, you know, live up to the expectations that are set for them. But instead of just saying like that kid's bad, you basically look at what is happening in the fence, where the stressors are, and then kind of diagnose what they are and make people deal with it. Because believe it or not, people don't like dealing with all kinds of conflict in their lives, especially in marriages. And especially when it comes to finances, people just ignore it. And then it presents in a bunch of different ways. Why not? Because it's hard. (laughs) It's hard. It's much, it's much easier to be a teammate um, on a very obvious problem. Oh, there's not a grade that we wanted from a kid. Like we want them to get an A and, and not a whatever. It's easy to say if we could just fix that stuff would be better. And, and, and even in relationships, you know, like in relationships with our significant others, we, we think, oh, if they would just stop being so blank, I don't know, critical or irresponsible, then everything would be better. But we don't realize that sometimes that is connected to the way that the relationship is set up in the first place right? The way that we function. I think you're describing coping skills that we all, all of our systems, whether as an individual or as a family, you know, the world is not perfect. The world is not easy and we face hard stuff and we come up with different ways to cope with it. And some of that coping is healthy. Like, all right, this is the actual, this is really what's going on and this is how we're really going to address it. And then some of it is unhealthy, like distracting saying, you know, oh, we don't have problems in our, in this marriage. Like the child is the problem. School is the problem. Let's cope with this by dealing, by paying attention to something else. Mm-hmm. And it's not even a, for a lot of people, though, it's not a conscious decision. It's oh, just absolutely. how a family system works. And so like there, there's a um, therapist, I don't remember their name, at the Fuller Institute where I went to school that said like, you know, 80% of the, the people that they saw, there was a real family dysfunction and the people didn't realize it. The parents like had, didn't realize that there was so much conflict between them and it was just presenting in these other parts of the family and they didn't realize that that's where it came from. Diagnosing that's a really big step in family systems theory. But there's a lot of different parts of it, right? As I just want to say that another note on that, like as humans, we're, we're really programmed to seek stability, even stability amidst dysfunction, right? Like sociologists like Dirk Harmon Berger have talked about how religion and all social orders is just to try to temper chaos. Like we, we are built on a foundation of chaos. And so that to say, a lot of people would rather keep their broken chain link fence and pretend it's not broken than have no fence at all. So the fear of not having a fence of the whole system collapsing will keep people from really looking at the places where they need to work on things. Yeah. And I think it it also depends on how motivated an individual is in discovering themselves, like self-differentiating themselves from their family. And if you don't have a desire to really do that and you just stay in the system and accept it, we probably face less conflict because there's nothing that you're trying to change or rebel against or move away from. I think that's an important thing to kind of define. What what do we mean by self-differentiation? Because I hear that a lot when I hear people talk about family systems. It's important to have well-defined boundaries, but like what exactly does that look like? Is that one part of family systems theory? And And if so, can we kind of like rattle off a few different pieces of it so we can get our minds around what this whole thing is? 
I don't know. Correct me if I'm wrong, Katie. I'd really like your insight on this. You're talking about, I'm sorry, I forgot the term, like the individual family system or internal family family system. So wouldn't that like be the clash between family systems and internal family systems? Like how both of those relate to one another? Yeah, well, so internal family systems theory is just the application of family systems theory to an individual. I mean, have you ever had a conversation with someone you're like, well, part of me wants to do this, but part of me wants to do that, and part of me feels this way? You mean human beings are consistent all the way through (laughs) in every part of their life? No way. Nope. So if you listen to yourself and realize that you're saying, I mean, I do it all of the time, and now that I am more intentional about internal family systems theory, it's even more interesting to me. Um, but just when you're saying or recognizing part of me wants to do this, part of me wants to do that, it's that part of you is trying to protect yourself from something. Part of you is trying to um, get yourself to grow and take more ambition or part of you is trying to get love um, either in ways that work or ways that don't. And the healthier you are, those parts work together and your core self really shines through. But in really unhealthy situations, all of those parts are, all you know, they're all kind of freaking out that they might lose what little that they have. And then as you are in an or unhealthy situation, um, they get pushed to extremes. Um, so the way that works, the way that way that works in a family is, uh, the forces of like wanting to be together and wanting to be separate and how those balance out. Because if there's too much togetherness, sometimes the family will prop me up in unhealthy ways to where I don't have to develop as an individual or take care of myself in normal ways. And so it actually stunts my growth. Um, but in the other way, too much separateness can also be a dysfunction as well. So balancing forces like that, like you're saying in one person also happens in a family. And sometimes when there's too much balance one way, a person will come in and rebalance it, but it's not, it's not a real balance. Like, and, and it's not like there's a perfect thing that we always have to like, fit this one exact mold. It's just that we can tell when there's too much stress one way or another sometimes. I think that's really interesting. I didn't mean to derail you. <laughs> no, that's okay. Can we, let, I'd love to keep talking about this, but I'm still trying to understand. I, I think I have the least experience with this family systems thing. So can you guys help me understand that the, I think Jeff, you mentioned there's like eight points of this, right? Can we talk about those or maybe we don't have to go into all eight, but what are the most interesting? <laughs> so some of the eight points, I mean, they're like all kinds of technical whatever, but it talks about, it kind of highlights like here are some of the specifics of what family systems do and how it works. So you have like sibling positions, like firstborn middle child and how your placing in the family affects your affects how you are affected by your family. Like we all, we all, you know, have the the stereotypes connected to that. Um, And we all know middle children are the best. I'm pretty sure firstborn are the best, right, Mona? (laughs) Get back in your place, Alan. (laughs) Middle children hold it all together. That's our problem. Right there. We think we can control the whole system. It's really sad. Don't let Alan keep talking yeah, about the child. <laughs> Next so, point. Uh, <laughs> and then there's there's like there's other stuff. Like one of the points is emotional cutoff. So the idea of managing our issues through our family through either severe, like just complete disconnect from the family system to try to be completely independent from it or limited interaction, whether it's through distance or what and part of that's healthy, you know, s- slowly becoming and figuring out who you are. Um, but it seems to me, and this is again, this is based on off of my experience in in youth ministry. It's based off of the the things that I learned about this theory through my wife, who was a psych major, just reading her books and asking her a bunch of questions. But it seems to be like this idea of family systems is how do you become an individual, but also maintain some kind of w- what you've carried on from your family. So it's it seems like 
a struggle. Like, you know, if we think about it, we, we're grown up and our whole lives is built around what our parents decide for us. And then we have this middle ground that we talked about uh, last week with adolescence, where now we're at a place in our brain development where we can sort of try to maneuver all through that. And then we spend the rest of our adulthood figuring out which things we're going to leave behind and which things we're going to embrace. And then how we transfer that into, if we decide to have a family, how we transfer that into the next generation. So it seems to be this lifelong struggle or work of finding out who we are in relation to ourselves and how we differentiate ourselves from our family and then how we interconnect with our family. For me, I put a welcome mat in front of my door when I was a kid. Is that individuation? Like in the in front of my in front of my bedroom, my bedroom door in the hallway, I had a little welcome mat so people could like knock on my door if they want to see me. (laughs) (laughs) It's like such an old man thing to do. Like how old were you? Uh, high school, You're, I think, maybe freshman. It's like cuter. It is. Aww. I picture Alan outside of his bedroom in like a lawn chair, and there's a screen door. And he's, <laughs> he's just yelling at people walking down the hall, Sm- smoking like a bubble yum pipe, and he's like, "You kids, get off my lawn." That was my way of saying I'm different. You know, I'm different than everybody else. One of the most important things in family system theories, and probably the most diagnosable and immediately recognizable things, is triangulation. Um, There's a lot of concepts that are involved, but triangulation is the concept that two people will be having conflict, and you'll bring a third party into it that's not necessarily involved in the conflict, but helps relieve the pressure somehow. And a lot of times that's a child to pay. or or increase the pressure depending upon the family dynamic. So, Alan, yes. you, you're hitting on the first of eight concepts: the triangulation, and then the next one is the differentiation of self, and then the nuclear family emotional process, the family projection process, where we project our insecurities on another else, and then there's the multi generational transmission process, the emotional cutoff we talked a little bit about before, uh, sibling positions and societal emotional process. I know that's a lot of language, but uh, for your listeners, we're going to put that a link to the kind of the breakdown of this family system in the show notes. So you can kind of get a sense of of some of the specifics of these. And they also include different examples. So I'm sorry to interrupt, Alan, but I thought that was a good... So that's that's the original points that were put forward in the theory, the, the original elements. Yeah. But it's important to talk about it in ways that are kind of recognizable to you. And the reason I get really excited about triangulation, I don't know if excited is the right word, but I've been caught up in triangles several times throughout my life because I'm kind of like an enabling personality. And so sometimes I get brought into conflict between two people um, where people air their problems to me. Oh, for instance, um, one of the only times I ended up on the, for, for me, the unfortunate side of a triangle was um, there was a person who had conflict with me when I was in high school. And I didn't realize it. I thought I had a really great relationship with this person. But because we had some drama with friendships and stuff that were not necessarily connected with us, um, this person went to church leadership when I was in high school and complained about me and said they probably shouldn't be working with the youth. Uh, He probably shouldn't be going on the junior high summer camp trip. Uh, And so what happened was the church leadership came to me and said somebody complained. They didn't say what the complaint was. But they just said they weren't comfortable with you being on this trip. <laughs> Is there a reason why they wouldn't be comfortable? And I just sat there for like a long time, like trying to think through what, what it is about me or what I did or who I had a bad relationship with, um, that would cause me not to go. And I had no idea who this person was. I had no idea what the problem was. And the leadership wouldn't tell me their name or, or what they brought up because they didn't really have anything to say. They just didn't want to go with me. Um, anyway, it really tore me up and I realized like, 
from this negative experience that triangles can be a bad thing. What needs to happen is someone should not have brought leadership to me and not, you know, anonymously and make a complaint that didn't even have any um, content. What should have happened was the two people are having conflict should have been able to sit down and talk with each other. And mediation is important, of course, but if you don't have those two people talk and work out the conflict, um, it forms a triangle between a third person and it gets unhealthy. So that's kind of like my personal story. That sucks that that happened to you. It. Uh, I do want to say that I think that that seems like a pretty extreme example of trying. It is. <laughs> it is. And, and, and it's not. And it's actually not a, a, a closed loop. I think the triangulation, in my understanding, is yes. like involving a third party who's a, a peer, not a power structure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then that peer actually is responsible for fixing. They, it's put the responsibility of fixing the problem is put on them. Do you have examples of this, Katie, in your work? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I serve a congregation, and I mean, this also might be more of the extreme, but there is two parts of a triangle always in search of a third in the congregation that I serve. There, um, sounds like are, a really bad personal ad. <laughs> Come to my church, we're all you. messed up. Um, no, we're all beautifully broken. Um, but when I first started, I kept getting caught up in these conflicts that seemed like this was fixable and solvable if only everyone would do as I was asking them to do. And I couldn't understand why I kept getting drawn into these conflicts. Um, again, this does play a little bit on like the power structure peer, like I'm not a peer. I was a authority in this situation, but I realized in the course of these conflicts that you know, these were two parts of a triangle in search of a third. And I, that was not a healthy relationship for any of us, especially for me to be in. And so I had to, you know, set up some boundaries so that we didn't keep perpetuating this habit. But it was really helpful for me in dealing with that experience to think about it, not in terms of like, what are my, what is my individual contribution? What is my individual failing? But what is the larger system here? What's the larger picture of what's going on? Um, and actually, before I pursued my religious education, I was a chemistry major because I felt that there were not enough women in science. And even though I had this call to ministry, I was first going to solve that problem of not enough women in science. <laughs> um, and I also felt that people in religion were not having informed conversations with people in science. And I was going to solve that problem, too. Um, and then I made it to my third semester of my chemistry major, which was like analytical and organic and all this hot mess. And I realized that I did not like chemistry. <laughs> um, but more importantly, I realized that I liked chemistry because I really resonated with this systems view of the world and the sense of predictability that, okay, here's a system. And if you poke it here, this is a predictable outcome. But for that change to be made, there's this activation energy. You got to get over this hump in order for a real change to be made. And I, it, I couldn't articulate that when I had to explain to my parents why I had 47s on all of my organic chemistry tests. But it is, that view is helpful to me now in just looking at the systems of people that I'm part of, um, and looking at the way those systems play out over and over and over again. You know, systems under stress seek equilibrium, and we do that as people too. So for example, when I was in high school, my family um, was sick. My dad was facing a really serious illness and my aunt was also facing um, a really a serious cancer. And so our family was under huge stress. Um, and I'm the older of two children. And while my dad was sick, I, you know, stepped up feeling that my contribution was to keep things stable, keep things going, um, and really 
performed really well under incredible pressure. Um, and my dad's doing okay. He's great. Um, my aunt unfortunately passed away after that time. Um, but in this really formative time of my life, I learned how to protect equilibrium. I learned how to cope under incredible stress. And so then fast forward approximately 10 years. And after some serious reflection, I realized, oh my gosh, the same system um, has played out in my professional life. I have, without realizing it, looked for and sought out um, a congregational setting in which there's a lot of stress and a lot of chaos. And I perform really well in this setting because I, without realizing it, get to keep, you know, hold things together, keep the fires from burning everything down. And that's not, I mean, that's all with reflection. That's not where I didn't <laughs> look for jobs thinking like, where, who is chaotic and where can it I It wasn't a conscious there? decision necessarily. No, not at all. Yeah. And, and it strikes me that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? Like nice. we're talking about people helping systems or fitting into systems a certain way. And we're not saying the system itself is bad or that people play different parts is bad, but being conscious, what I hear you saying is being conscious of the role you play helps you play it healthily instead of in a way that's Absolutely. unconscious and um, unhealthy. Yeah. And so instead of always reacting to what's going on, I can in a like more informed and more healthy way recognize what's going on inside myself and outside of myself and seek to be like not only promote my own health, but promote the health of the larger system that I'm part of. And I didn't start thinking about that way about my family or about my congregation until after I had been working at the hospital um, and doing CPE, which is a really wonderful and difficult and really hard and really beautiful experience of, you know, you get to show up and be a chaplain to patients and then have to go back and make sense of like, what have you just done and what have you just encountered? And in my visiting with patients, I kept having these experiences of I'd be sitting with a patient and they'd be telling me about their life and I would find a part of me had like checked out. Part of me was like not even in the room, not even in the hospital, like somewhere far, far away. And other parts of me are like trying to freak out and figure out, okay, practically how do I solve the situation? Another part of me is curled up in the corner, and the other part of me is like, "How can I show up and be the hero and save the day?" Um, and <laughs> that's I, hard. That's hard because people in hospitals, their problems are not always fixable, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Especially if you're the chaplain, you're like the least yes helpful. I cannot. I cannot help you with your blood. I cannot you can help you with your medicine. You can hand a blanket to someone, though, right? That, right. I can give you yeah. a Bible. I can pray with you. I can count on one hand the practical things I can do. <laughs> um, which it was a real joy and a real challenge to face those limits. But so in meeting with patients, I realized, okay, this is a thing going on inside me. Like, what on earth is this? Um, all these, and I didn't have this language word at first until my incredible and wonderful supervisor um, said, well, you know, this sounds like you've got some disassociation going on and here's a framework that's really helped me. I wonder if it might help you. And she introduced me to internal family systems theory and I recognize like, oh, part, I'm, I'm a system and different parts of me are trying to protect me in different ways. How can I rein those parts in and how can I understand them and not try and shut them down, but understand the interests of all these parts of me in the same way? How can I understand the interests of the parts of my family and how can I understand the interests and needs of the parts of my congregation? They're all there in all situations and they're, 
paying attention to them is what's I think is important and not trying to shut that down. Um, I'm also not, yeah, it's healthy. Know thyself, know thyself and know thy systems. And that's a healthy thing to do. So in, in your work, have you encountered the other side of that coin where here's you, you've had these experiences and you realize, wow, there's these patterns, there's these things that are happening in my life and the result of these systems or this process. And now I can be aware of them to manage them better. Like what has been your experience with people who are not conscious to these patterns in their own life and how destructive that can be? Um, well, it can be a challenge for sure. Um, for myself, once I realized like, oh, I'm in a, we're in a crisis pattern where I had a volunteer working with me and she was covering a program on my day off and it was a challenging program with some kids with some challenges or some kids that presented some challenges. And so I, what happened was, is she would be there on the program. There would be some kind of incident. She would like debrief it with my supervisor who wasn't actually at the program. And then my supervisor would come to me and be like, Oh my God, this happened. This, like, what is, what is going on? And I, this happened like four weeks in a row. And then I was like, Oh, this is, we've established like this little triangle here that just keeps rolling around. Um, I'm going to cut this pattern and talk to the volunteer and it's like, okay, debrief with me first and so that I hear it directly from you because I have the closest relationship to these youth. And then as a team, let's work on this together. So that's like kind of a, a short-term piece in terms of in is, my work. Is oh, it hard sometimes to get people to, to look at a systems as a team? I mean, like in any system, some people are really benefiting, right, from a system and some people mm-hmm. are benefiting a little bit less. And so when you when you look at a system, a family or whatever, the people who are who stand to lose the most sometimes are the most resistant to any sort of chain change, right? So like right. there are people who are being propped up in an unhealthy way and it's very threatening for people to have their status quo change. And I think that's for any family anywhere and even for any person, I think sometimes change is a a scary thing. And I think it was really interesting. You talked about how there's initial energy needed um, mm-hmm. for, for change to energy. happen. Yeah. And sometimes that paying attention and like mapping it out and thinking uh, systemically instead of just individuals in our families is the initial energy that we don't have. And that's hard to muster, but for the longevity of our systems so that our families don't break down and our relationships don't, you know, peter out and all those other things, it's important to invest that energy so that we can diagnose problems earlier on, right? Like things work much, for instance, in codependency, when somebody, when you're enabling someone to do, have an unhealthy lifestyle and you're, you are helping them not become a responsible human being, sometimes that puts too much strain on you and it's actually bad for your relationship. It may feel good for your relationship that you're taking care of this other person and allowing them to do all these unhealthy things um, and you're cleaning up after them all the time. But until you set boundaries, you're not actually thinking about the long term of your relationship. You're setting it up for failure. So going through that initial energy to set boundaries is hard and people yeah. resist it. But for the long term benefit of your family and your relationships, it's important. Yeah, I would say, especially as someone who works with teenagers, um, when I would have difficult situations with the, te- like some sort of crisis with a teenager, 
especially at the beginning, I'd be like, oh man, look at me and how good I did with like helping solve that situation. I did so good just then. Um, but then that would keep happening. And, and then it, I had to think, okay, why is this happening all of the time? And move away from this idea of like, oh, this is a bad kid or this is a good kid. Yeah. But instead think about when I'm in relationship with this individual, how are we both behaving? Are we making good choices? Are we making bad choices? And not just about like, as though I were always perfect and this kid is the one that's always causing the trouble that it can often be the other way around. But in, in addition, um, that activation energy idea, you know, thank you, chemistry, <laughs> um, 10 years ago. Yeah. Or a quick side note. So when I realized that I didn't actually like chemistry for the sake of chemistry and that I did not want to pursue that as my major, nor could I because my grades were too low. I had a wake for my chemistry major and my friends and I all burned my lab notes um, <laughs> and <laughs> roasted marshmallows over their ashes. And I was friends with all the musicians. So I had like four, three or four different acapella groups represented at the wake and we all sang together and it was great. <laughs> that um, sounds like the beginning to a movie for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cool. Um, but to the activation energy idea, um, there's another framework that I've found really helpful in that too, which is the harm reduction model initially introduced um, for working with people in addiction and recovery, but I've also seen it translated and applied to children and youth. But the idea that when it comes to people are resistant to change, sometimes for good reasons and sometimes for bad, but there's a reason there. And the harm reduction model starts with the idea that you can be pre- or I'm not going to get the jargon right, um, but here are the ideas of it. First, that you can be, you look at a situation you're like, I don't need to change. I'm fine. Um, I think it's precognition is that, or precontemplation. That's the term. Before you decide you, you don't need to make a change because you're not, it's not even on your radar. Then contemplation is you're thinking about maybe I do need to make a change, but you're not actually prepared to make a change. Then the next step is preparation where you're preparing to actually make a change. And then, after that is the time where you're you're actually making the change, you're doing it, um, and then you have to maintain it. And sometimes you get caught up and you relapse, um, especially in terms of addiction, addiction, and then go back to where you were and you have to start through that whole process. Or sometimes you move on and you like affect a big lasting change. And so this is, you know, when I think about change within families and change within, even within individuals. Um, the idea that, you know, it takes activation energy. We all know what we should be doing. And so many of us don't do it because it takes effort to change um, how we behave and change what we're doing. And it just takes work. So harm reduction is like helping people take those initial steps to begin the process of facing their change. Well, and I think what we're talking about something that kind of almost comes before, like the pre-contemplation -co pre part. Family systems theory would help you gather information about what you're subconsciously doing and acting and thinking, right? So it's from what I'm hearing from everybody from this whole conversation, it's that we all have an old normal. We all have a normal that we're, we're raised with, that we're used to, that we're used to um, acting within and in spite of sometimes. And that old normal includes healthy and unhealthy things. As we come into adulthood and we, we gain responsibility and we forge our new lives and our new normal, we will bring that old normal in without realizing it unless we do some real work to unpack it, right? So we all have an ideal of a new normal of like a healthy version of ourselves that we want to be, but we can't get there unless we really 
excavate all of the old normal and how our normal was created. Does that make sense? Well, so we're negotiating always with the new normal and the old normal. Well said. That's good. <laughs> That's good. That, I like that. That's a great, I think, uh, a good way to kind of bring all this into a nice... Uh, a little bow on <laughs> Kind of. <laughs> that was welcome. really well said. Thanks. Well, you know, I, I've just been listening. This is what you guys have basically just told me. And I appreciate, Katie, your story like about your career and like how you found your identity in... You know, and and recognizing the way that you were brought up, like that there's some drawbacks to being like really responsible and like the calm and the chaos, but also um, it's allowed you to be tremendously good at your job. So I think there's focusing on like the positive and negative things here is like really important to see. Um, and I, and I also think like introspection can be scary for some of us. Some of us are prone to be too introspective and some of us not introspective at all. And so, um, learning like where you naturally are inclined and then coming to a balance in that. But, um, introspection is a really good thing. And like, you don't have to introspect in the dark. There are, I guess what we're trying to say in this episode is like, there's a lot of really good frameworks, like the word Katie used, a lot of good models that people have developed of like ways that help us introspect in a, in a systematic, healthy way. And we can ask for professional help if we don't have the resources to like map out family systems theory on our own. Um, but starting with the self and our own personal experience and what's going on internally for us and like how we see ourselves and how we see our world and our systems is better. So please don't take this information and go diagnose your friends and family. <laughs> like work on yourself. <laughs> know what's out there and get professional help. You know, I there's one thing that really interests me. Uh, another side note before we move on. Um, before we close out. Before we close out. I'm really interested in how family systems work with faith. Only personally because um, I've seen in my life with friendships, um, with relationships with family, that because I am more of a spiritually inclined person and it's a very big interest in my life and now I'm a, a minister, sometimes like people associate me. I know this is really weird. Maybe you've experienced it, but people associate me with God sometimes. Like we're really close. <laughs> hold on, wait, hold on. Yep. We're we're really closely connected. And so my friendships will be up and down depending upon how that person um, interacts with their own faith. And so I'll have like family members or friends who like they're having a moment of spiritual awakening or something. And then like our friendship, like, you know, waxes and wanes according to how they're connected or feeling disconnected from God. And like for me personally, <laughs> it sounds funny, but me personally, it's like a really painful thing sometimes is that um, it's hard for me uh, to see people get excited about God and, and then connect with me on a personal level. It's almost like we form this little triangle between God and that person and me. And it's not just in a ministerial capacity. It's in kind of all capacities. And maybe I'm sorry because... I laughed, but that makes a lot of sense. So. I mean, <laughs> I it does. People and associate I'm... with me with God's funny, but, but yeah. Well, you, you guys are all pastors. I'm talking to three pastors today and I'm <laughs> the daughter of a pastor. And so I can see that though. I mean, I always felt it's a strange experience to be a pastor's kid because you grow up with your parental figure being representing a parent and representing God at the same time. And that gets really confusing. That gets confusing as hell. I'm going to say, I'm going to offer to say most pastor's kids have like some serious issues because <laughs> figuring all that out is really strange, you know, but I, I never thought about what it's, yeah, I never thought of what, it, what it's like to be a pastor and have people relate to you in that way. That's it's really painful. Crazy. I mean, like even my, and not to put anyone on blast, but even my own family, you know, it's reacted that way. Like, when they get excited about God, there's more connection with me. And 
I don't know. It's it's uh that right there is a triangle that I'll, I'm going to try to figure out, I guess, in my life. Um, even though you told people not to diagnose themselves, (laughs) it's just something super interesting. So if any listeners, you can diagnose yourself, just not other people. (laughs) If there are any listeners who are psychologists and are interested in how faith and family systems work or anybody has any resources they want to send my way, please do. Because I'd love what, what I just expressed is something I deal with probably on a daily basis. And, um, so here's my cry for, here's my cry for help. (laughs) (laughs) Well, for me, I, when I read scripture, thinking about the people in scripture in terms of families and how, cause it's so easy to think like Paul living in a vacuum, hero individual, yeah. um, influenced only by God and Paul being Paul or any of the Jesus. Yeah. Even or, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, but understanding that no individual is part of a vacuum and that's part of what makes us human is that we're in relationship to each other. And so, reading scripture and understanding the people in scripture as part of families and reacting to each other and serving roles. Um, and, you know, we have selective memory too when it yeah. comes to writing down the things of scripture. But looking, looking at my, myself and my family and my congregation and scripture and realizing we are all connected to each other and we're all an islands, islands of misfit toys. Um, but we are all beautiful and loved and part of this giant chaotic family. Um, was that a Christmas reference? I that was a Christmas it. reference. Very nice. <laughs> I think that's a kind of a, and, and when we talk about church and faith, one of the dominating metaphors is family. So I think those connections are super appropriate when we talk about that. And for some people, the local church community literally is their family because they don't have any biological family or anything else, so that those experiences shape them maybe more than anything else. So I think uh, I think that's a good place to end. Those are all those are all great takeaways for this huge complex issue. Uh, so if you have anything to add to the conversation, you can go to the show notes at arenacast.com slash thirty nine. And uh, it, with all of these conversations that we have, there's so many ways to get a hold of the show. And if you feel that we missed on something or because like I said before, it's sort of self-deprecatingly and in, in a joking manner, but we really aren't experts in this. This is something that's coming out of, of who we are and what our experiences are. And we know that other people have other experiences. And our whole mission for this podcast is to create a space where people can bring in their insight and literally join a conversation. So if you have anything to add to this or any other episodes, you can always check out our feedback page at irenacast.com slash feedback and uh, you know help us kind of round out some of these ideas because a lot of them we're in process as well. And I think that's just a natural human place to be is in process. Uh, so I think uh, that's a good place to, to stop right there. And on the other side of the music, we'll be bringing back our segment called Jesus Juke. All right, so we are bringing back Jesus Juke, and for those of you that may not, or are new listeners, I can't remember the exact episode, but I will put it in our show notes, um, which episode we introduced this game, but this is only the second time we're doing it, and basically, we are all going to <laughs> preach several mini-sermons. So each of us have come up with a word or a phrase, and the other hosts or other co-hosts have to 
basically turn it into some kind of illustration towards Jesus. So what this comes from, again, if you don't remember, is from John Acuff. He said he came up with the term Jesus Duke. It's when you're in a conversation with someone and they unnecessarily and unnaturally just veer the conversation toward God. And it's like, oh, interesting. That's what you had for lunch? Well, let me tell you about God. And so it's like (laughs) somehow you're juking them. It's like a basketball maneuver toward Christ. So that's what that's what we're going to do. Yes. But hey, we can only do this because a lot of us here are preachers. And so we like love preaching. We love being pastors. So we're going to make fun of it a little bit because that's what we do for a living. We can make fun of ourselves, right? No. Yep. Yes. Okay, good. True. All right. So Katie, guests first, would you like to start us out? Okay. Excellent. My word is vase. Okay, so vase, since it's Christmas and Advent, a vase can hold, you know how like a vase can hold anything. A vase is an empty space where we put things in, and uh, some vases are better than others. There's those little tiny vases that hold one rose, and you can't really put too much in there, and you know they're kind of gross sometimes because they have that water residue sticking to the sides. Well, Jesus is like the best possible vase you could ever imagine. It is He is beautiful. He is large enough to hold all of our hopes and our dreams of humanity. And when we look at Jesus coming to earth, he is that perfect vase where we can take our hopes for our society, our hopes for ourselves and for our families and put them inside of him. And he can hold all of our hopes like little pebbles and rocks and little fake water goblet thingies. The- <laughs> <laughs> God, I hate this game so much. Go. I hate this. I'm so uncomfortable right now. Woo-hoo! That's a good one. I like that. I thought you were going to say Jesus is the residue that never no. leaves us. <laughs> Jesus is the vase. We are those little fake water pellets. Our hopes are those little fake water pellets that go inside of him. There you go. My hopes are not fake, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, so God created us all as beautiful flowers, but sin has cut us off at the stem. And the only way that we can sustain life is through the vase of Jesus. And our life is sustained longer and blessed more by the good things that we put into that vase that allow us to blossom and thrive instead of the bad things that cause us to wither and die. I'm pretty sure that was yeah. heretical. I don't want to go after that one. Opinion. <laughs> <laughs> Are you saying we can add to Jesus, Jeff? Is that what it is? No, Jesus I'm pretty sure Jesus is all I need. Jesus is the container and has created this, our life. Jesus is the new But we're going to die. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> but we're going to die just like cut flowers. Right? I, I like that, though. Sin has cut us off at the stem. Perfect. <laughs> all right, Moda, you're up. You got I want a shirt that says stem has, sin has cut us off at the stem. All right, my turn. Sometimes we see ourselves as stable, solid rocks, but in fact, we are delicate, fragile vases. Our internal family systems determine that we are, we are prone to the handling of life. And sometimes life drops us and we shatter just like a vase. But Jesus is the super glue that puts that vase back together so well that we do not leak a single drop and we are able to hold the flowers of the Holy Spirit. Very nice. It's a good one. Very nice. Very uplifting. So, so, so Katie, what do you think? Who who had the best moves, the best juke of all three? I really liked uh, Sin Cut Us Off at the Stem. (laughs) (laughs) Just because it's so well-worded. It doesn't even matter what it is. If it sticks in your mind, 
<laughs> that's so true. That's preaching, man. That's preaching. The art of preaching is being a wordsmith and getting those things to stick in people's mind. <laughs> that's pretty good. So Jeff, so Jeff won. So that's a, that's a point for Very me. Very well right? done. Very well done, Jeff. Jeff, you're good at you're good at preaching fake. All right. <laughs> yeah, I am. It's true. I can be us uh, with the best of them. <laughs> very good. All right, Alan, give us your word. My word is, oh, speaking of fake, my word, and wow, I don't know why we're going with plants today, but a fake plant, like a plastic plant. I can hear you guys thinking really loud right now. It's de- it's deafening. I was about to talk, you oh. know, so. <laughs> just... Go ahead, cousin. <laughs> Thanks, cousin. We've all heard the radio so- head song, Fake Plastic Trees. You know, the fake plastic watering cans. This is a youth sermon that I'm making culturally relatable. Fake Plastic Trees is a radio head song talking about how we all live and move in a fl- fake plastic world. But you know, if we tune our radio heads to Jesus, we will have a better understanding of how to navigate this fake plastic world. So tune your heads to Jesus, children. Very well done. (laughs) All right, Katie. All right. I was visiting a friend one day and I went inside her house and she had this beautiful house just filled with all of these beautiful ornaments, but all of these fake plastic plants. And I was struck by... What seemed to be a really life-filled place was just filled with these dusty and fake things. And how are our lives similar to that, too? Don't we too often decorate our souls with things that aren't real, that aren't life-giving, that just collect dust and make us sick? But, you know, fill, let us fill our, our spiritual homes with the true plants, the true vines, only that which comes from Jesus. Yay! Yay! (laughs) Excuse me while I go read the Bible. Man, I gotta follow that? (laughs) Beautiful. All right, Jeff, you're up. Um, man, okay. Jesus says that he is the vine. And he's he's not talking about a plastic fake vine filled of, oh man, I don't know. Okay. Um, Crap. I like how she put the true vine. I like how Katie threaded the true vine in there. That was like the mixing of so metaphors. Good. Beautiful. It was just so good. I don't think you can do so better good. than that. How am I supposed to move on from that without Katie Katie won? How about I think, that? Okay. You, <laughs> just, yeah. One for Katie. Uh, you, your sermon was just really short, Jeff. It was Jesus is not a fake plastic. <laughs> there you <vine."> Go home and meditate on that one. <laughs> <laughs> one point for Jeff, one point for Katie. I think that's all right. Okay. All right. So um, I, I guess I could say my word next. Okay, yes. go for it. The word is real plastic plant. No, I'm just kidding. The word is <laughs> the word is goose. Let's have Katie go first this time. So there's a pond in my parents' backyard that is filled with geese. They are everywhere. And coming from the south where Canadian geese like to migrate, they're just geese all over the place. Um, And they come and go as they please. And they used to drive me crazy. I once tried to convince my home church that to ship all of the geese in the church parking lot as part of Oxfam. 
Um, <laughs> but our pastor would not go for that plan. Um, but my perspective on geese changed when I learned that the goose is a, a Celtic symbol for the Holy Spirit. And if you look at these animals around us and consider how the Holy Spirit moves in our lives, I think we have a valuable lesson to learn. I mean, geese travel and arrive unbidden. Sometimes they will not leave you alone. Sometimes um, they wake you up in the middle of the night with their melodious honking. Sometimes if you engage a goose, you discover to your dismay that it is much bigger and more terrifying than you thought. And similarly, challenging the Holy Spirit with our own sin and pride, um, we can learn that God is actually much, much bigger than we thought. So this winter, as you are moving around and encountering geese or not, consider the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit is working in your life. It was a mistake. Yeah! <laughs> it was a mistake to have you go first. I know. <laughs> I realize that now. When you come back, you Katie, you're she, last she... so that we don't all look silly. Did you guys uh, catch she used the words unbidden and dismay? Oh, yeah. I know. It was beautifully worded. and oh, was. Man. Even the word honking sounded good. <laughs> Wonderful. I'm going to go first, Thanks. Alan, before you, right. just because I don't want to be left in the dust again. Okay, so... We've all heard the fairy tale about the goose that lays the golden egg. And too many times in our spiritual journey, we treat God like that goose that lays the golden egg. We offer up prayers of we want and we want and we want, and we forget in the midst of it that we should be living for something greater than material possession. Very nice. Very succinct. (laughs) Okay. Um, I think I'm going to do the youth group thing too. I think qualifying what audience helped. Mona, so I'm going to try that too. Here we go. At a local park growing up that I used to go to, there was a lake and there was a sign that said, please do not feed the wildlife. There were several goose there, geese, and people would come and they would, you know, throw bread and sometimes they'd throw other types of food. And um, so these, these geese would get used to being fed by these people who would come. And instead of relying upon the good natural food that God had created for these geese, they started to eat a diet of unnatural, of food that was supplied from an outside source. Um, and so just like, just like we are like geese, uh, when we rely upon God for the good that God gives us, the good that we've been promised in the Bible, and we read our Bible and we're nourished by the healthy, natural things. We are like healthy geese. But when sin comes along and tempts us and throws chips and throws bread <laughs> and throws rice and we eat those things, it's bad for us. And sometimes, sometimes sin isn't just people throwing little pieces of bread to feed us. Sometimes they ha- sin has even a more malevolent purpose. Sometimes it wants to cook our goose. So we have to be careful. <laughs> <laughs> we have to be careful what to eat. There you go. <laughs> oh my God, Alan, you did bring your A game. I told hey. you. I told you before we started that Katie was going to be a force to reckon with, and you, you were no like, "Don't other. worry, I'll bring my A game." Yay! And um, you know what? 
God, this is a hard decision, but I think the cooking the goose got me. It got, <laughs> See, it it's got just me in my the soul. Thing that sticks in your head. That's all yeah, I didn't. I honestly didn't think you were going to beat Katie out on that one. But so now it's Jeff one, Katie one, and Alan one. Wow. And I'm okay not to be in the running because I'm not a professional preacher. So this is like this. This is the battle of the professional Titan preachers preaching against each other. The clash. Of I'm the like titans. caught in the midst of it. I'm just caught in the midst. It's They're, great. You're just getting juked around. That's what it is. We're all around. <laughs> Stop juking me around guys so this is right, potentially uh, either the tiebreaker or the tie maker the, exactly oh, look at that effortless and in the end alan your your propensity towards old people puns won you that round uh, <laughs> hey don't <laughs> knock the greatest generation all right <laughs> okay um all right my word is guitar string so alan why don't you start this one sure since you so um god has made us to be a healthy a healthy guitar string, like a healthy guitar string. If we have the appropriate amount of tension, um, the appropriate amount of stress upon us, we can be plucked and sing sweet melodies to God in our lives through the Holy Spirit. But when other stress comes in our life and we allow it to stress us out, when we allow family systems to co-opt us in unhealthy ways, and we allow sin to tighten our strings too tight, we are in in danger of snapping. But even if we do snap, God always has a second string. Always. For us. That's it. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> Mona, why don't you go next? When I was in eighth grade, we moved to a new town. And I was really, I was really lonely, you guys. I couldn't find any friends. And my dad said, hey, I have this old guitar. Would you like to learn how to play it? And I said, I would. And you know what? I started learning how to play that guitar and it hurt my fingers and it hurt my fingers and it hurt my feeling fingers. It didn't hurt my feelings. It hurt my fingers. And one day I said, dad, I want to learn how to tune the strings myself. And he said, okay, here's how you do it. You turn the little knobs and you make them all align with each other. And so I started turning the knobs and I, and I couldn't get it. I couldn't get the, the tuning to sound right. Everything I did sounded wrong. And I would, I would tune one string and then another string would sound wrong. And I would tune another string and another string would sound wrong. And you know, it just reminded me of faith community and how in faith community, we have to really tune to each other in order to sound healthy as a total instrument. And so what I learned how to do is to tune the strings to each other so that they would all sound good when played at the same time. That is how the community of Jesus should operate. Ooh. Very nice. That was good. Very nice. A, B, C, D, or however you do it, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not a, I'm not a music person. Okay. <laughs> I just tried to name all the... <laughs> That's my New Year's resolution, is to become a music person someday. Maybe next year. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's good. All right, Katie, finish this out. All right. <clears throat> um, if you have just one guitar string and you play it, it might sound like this. Bing, 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 bing. It's one note, one sad little note all by itself. And you can change, change a little bit as you play, but it's just one, just one note. And it's really not that interesting. Um, but a neat thing about guitars is that you have six strings all strung together, all of them different notes, and all of them together can make some really 
beautiful music. Um, and the same way too, you can look at this metaphor both as applies to us and as applies to our relationship to God, that there are parts of us that, um, we wish we could tune out, but they're part of who we are and playing them together with the fullness of who we are is a beautiful thing. And, um, playing the, the strings of our souls, um, with God and with Jesus and with the Holy Spirit, with God, our creator, Jesus, our brother, and the spirit, our sustainer. Once we are in harmony together in the words of come thou fount of every blessing, tune our hearts to sing thy praise. That is the most, what I think the most beautiful image of discipleship and of following Jesus, that our hearts are tuned, that our strings are tuned, and that we are playing in harmonies with others. Amen. <laughs> you know what? If if you are a very discerning listener, you will hear Mona talk about systems in a big way, and then how Katie just did internal systems theory in her message. <laughs> you talked about yourself, all those different elements of who you are playing together. Full circle. Way to, way to bring it all together, Alan. Like, yeah. That was, Thanks. This is a done. fun game. We can play this all the time. <laughs> Growing up, they used to do it um, during children's moments at my church. A child would bring something to the pastor, and the pastor had to sit down and do it. And if this was for real, not even a joke. <laughs> like, have to preach a sermon <laughs> to kids based on the object that they brought. So, this is great fun. preparation. They should. This is what we should have done in my preaching class. Should have. Um. It should have been lightning rounds and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! One time, my. Pastor showed up to church thinking that our intern was preaching that Sunday, and the intern showed up to church thinking that the oh, pastor no. was preaching that Sunday. Um, and ever since then, I've always been prepared that maybe it might I'm be you. Like it might be me. It might be you. <laughs> be ready. All right. Well, I'm going to go ahead and declare Mona as the winner. Oh, ah! we're all winners. So we are all winners. Oh, Yay! And that means nobody <laughs> wins. Yay! <laughs> Wow, hey, Alan, way to be a pessimist, uh, all right? You, you go from this My beautiful breakdown of how things are going, <laughs> and then you just get mean by saying that nobody wins. All right, well, uh, before we close out, uh, we want to thank Katie so much for joining us this week. Thank you, Katie. Yes. Thanks for having me. Well, again, thank you so much for, for joining us this week. We really, really appreciate it. My pleasure. And I think that'll do it for us this week. So... Don't forget that if you like what you hear, you can support the show by going to iTunes and Stitcher to rate, review, and subscribe. It really helps the show get more visible to people who are part of those platforms. And then contact us anytime with your feedback at irenacast.com slash feedback. So for this week, I'm Jeff. I'm Mona. I'm Alan. And I'm Katie. Thanks for joining the conversation. 